0: Welcome to the Imago Day Podcast, the show of philosophical and theological reflections for today's world. My name is Lewis, and I am joined by Professor Joseph Terry. Joe, how are you today?
1: Doing well, Lewis. Thank you for uh, having us on here, hosting this, and uh, just always excited to be with you and and for those, you know, with all those who are listening, even though I don't see you guys, I, I know you're there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> today, uh, in this episode, we're going to continue our conversation on Catholicism. I know very little about Catholicism, I realize, but (laughs) just talking to you, hearing your story and your journey into Catholicism, um, I think it was very illuminating for me, and it also gave me a lot more questions, a lot more uh, areas and aspects of Catholicism that I do want to speak with you about. Um, So today, I wanted to first start off our conversation just talking about... Just the beef between Catholic and Protestant, you know, like the Reformation (laughs) and and how all that started. I'll begin with the story. Um, When I was in high school, my friend and I were walking to school and he was hardcore Catholic at the time. And Mm. I remember during the conversation, he just kind of he just labeled me. He was like, oh, yeah, because, you know, you're a Protestant, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, no, you're a Protestant. I was like, what do you, what do you mean? Like, I remember just getting so triggered because just the, mm. the way that he just kind of put me in this box, and then he had to like sit there and explain to me that, similar to like how, um, non-Jews are also known as Gentiles, right? So there's Jews mm-hmm. and Gentiles, mm-hmm. um, within the Catholic Church. I mean, just within the church at large, like within Christianity, there there's Catholics and then there's Protestants, which are another label for non-Catholics. So that, um, I found that very intriguing and I just wondered like, okay, how did this start? You know, because this seems like a really, really big um, level of like conflict or friction within Christianity. So Mm -hmm. can you just kind of help? I know you're not a historian and you can also add your disclaimer here, but just kind of frame just this historical moment within the church, right? It's we're in the year 1517 or whatever, the Catholic churches in a particular place. Like how did, what happened? Like what happened with this split that began what's known as Protestantism today?
1: You know, first thousand years of the church, there was just one church, one Holy Catholic and apostolic church, um, as the creed says, and around 1054 AD due to a number of uh, different reasons both linguistic and political and somewhat theological, there was a split within the universal church between Mm. East and West, the Greek speaking East, the Latin speaking West. And again, it's a rather complicated issue, um, but roughly around 1054 is when this was official, decisively occurring. Um, And so then there was a split. Down the middle, if you will.
0: Before the split, how big was the church? Like, coming from the Great oh, Commission to 1054
1: AD, was the church, like, oh, It was global. Okay, already global. I mean, I mean well, well, you know, before the, the quote-unquote discovery of the new world and and, and all of that there, um, it, it reached already as far as Asia, Europe, North Africa. I mean, you know, in that sense, right? Um, <clears throat> but yeah, it, it, it had a tremendous reach and was positioned to continue to go forward, um, and, and spread as far as, you know, as possible. Um, so you, you have this split there. And then ever since then you have what we today call the Orthodox church and the Catholic church, the Roman Catholic church. And, um, then of course, another, 500 years later, roughly around 1517, you have this little German Augustinian monk. He is an Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther. And even before we say anything about Martin Luther, there were many, as it were, reforms that occurred in the church, even before Luther. And and we can think about this in terms of, well, at least from the side of the Catholic church, proper reform and improper reform, right? Um, so if you, you know, we're all familiar with Francis, right? St. Francis or um, and others like this, right? Uh, St. Dominic. Uh, these were reformers. Um, they they saw profound corruption. They felt a call by God um, and they went to seek to build up the the church once again. And um, while there was always a perennial temptation to split, to say, we're going to break away and do our own thing here. Um, and while that did indeed occur with, with certain folks here and there, uh, these other major reformers, of course, did not, which is what we would say in the Catholic Church, proper reform, right? Um, with Martin Luther, and again, not a historian here, but I know 1517, he noticed what he perceived as abuses uh within the church questions about indulgences he himself was coming to terms with uh his reading of the bible his the scriptures and he had his own particular temperament uh, psychological profile that really in one sense cultivated within him a kind of profound disposition f- towards anxiety really around his salvation wow. um he he yeah he he, you know he, he 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 just wasn't he felt that in his monastic order and and all that he was doing he just wasn't good enough for for the love of god mm. and of course i'm I'm caricaturizing yeah, yeah. a bit here but but this is this was something that he really did struggle with and it was a reading of scripture uh he was a professor at a local university in germany in wittenberg i believe it was um uh, and and really engaging in scripture that he came to terms particularly with a certain reading of saint paul where he saw wait wait salvation is a gift it's not something that i work for it's a gift and he ran with that <clears throat> and he um that coupled with other things put forth of course the 95 theses and and this wasn't his attempt to break away from the church it, this was actually a common thing, uh, especially among academics, that you would you would um, put forward certain positions, certain uh, ideas that you wanted to have a debate about, a public okay. debate. And he he went ahead and did that. Ninety-five theses on the church, mm-hmm. church's door, at least that that's how it's uh, historically understood. And this went to the higher ups, and one thing led to another, and to make a long story short. Though he did not want to leave the church, he felt in one sense he had no other choice. You know, he he, he you know, he he was strongly encouraged by the local bishop and, and went all the way up to the Pope, like, bro, you can't be doing this, you, you're walling out over here. And he's like, No, I'm gonna do it. And excommunication. He was excommunicated. He he's like, yeah, he was like, ah, screw the church in a sense, and I'm gonna do my own thing. And that's what happened. But he never really wanted to leave the church. And The thing here is there were a number of issues that he saw. Uh, One was that the church, as he saw it, just chained the gospel. It didn't really offer a proper articulation of the good news of God in Christ. Um, so in one sense and, and you see this flourishing a bit more With the other reformers With Zwingli and, and Calvin Notwithstanding their own disagreements Right, Luther and Zwingli had profound disagreements About the role of the sacraments Particularly the body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist And then later on, 40 years later Calvin had a, a sort of different reading there um, <clears throat> Not, Although you see differences among the reformers um, Nevertheless There is This desire to bring about a, how can I say, uh, uh, um, a recovery of the good news Mm. of the kingdom of God, a recovery of the gospel.
0: It sounds like um, prior to uh, Luther's 95 thesis, what kind of emphasis was the church putting on scripture? Was it just a facet of the church? Because it seems like after, like with the birth of Protestantism and, and Martin Luther's ideas and others like him that more of an emphasis on scripture was placed. Like, do you know, like what happened there with scripture particularly?
1: Scripture was of course present and very much in the lifeblood of the church um, as it was since her inception, but it was always understood in concert and in union with sacred tradition, the deposit of faith. Um, and the, when we think about the role of scripture and and, and whatnot, there are a couple of ways in which we can approach it. One of which, uh, is thinking about the question of interpretation, right? Who has the authority to interpret scripture properly? And the church recognized, uh, that collectively the bishops in union with the Pope, uh, formed what is called the magisterium that they offer, uh, by the by the guidance of the Spirit, a proper reading, a proper interpretation of Scripture, always in concert with the sacred deposit of the faith, always in concert, in other words, with tradition. What Martin Luther uh, did here is he unhooked the Bible from tradition in many ways. He removed the reading of Scripture uh, from, as it were, the magisterium's authority he wanted to place as it were the bible in the hands of the people mm. all right the vernacular just you know and that this idea that there's a there's a common clarity to the scripture that if anybody guided by the spirit picks up the bible they will be able to discern rightly now again everything i'm saying here could be construed as a kind of characterization there are far more nuances that i'm that i'm just really not covering here because because what I'm not saying, for instance, is that Martin Luther says, hey, everyone just have the Bible and you don't need proper discernment on how to read it, right? Mm-hmm. Martin Luther wouldn't say that mm-hmm. at all. In fact, Martin Luther became, as it were, his own pope. He became his own magisterium. And we see this in the spread of the Reformation because when other folks started to take... This idea and run with it they were coming up with different readings of the bible they were coming up with different interpretations and then luther was like no you guys are wrong but wait how does luther now have the authority you see what Mm -hmm. i mean so it becomes then a question of a proper handling and a proper reading of the scriptures see the 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 bible is the church's book it's not an individual's book Mm. And, and um While it is true the individual believer ought to appropriate Scripture, right, um, uh, prayerfully, devotionally, catechetically, and whatnot, there has to be a final authority, a governing authority, right? So because if I, let's say, read Matthew chapter, I don't know, 5, right, the Sermon on the Mount, i could I could interpret that in such a way that may run completely contrary mm-hmm. to the way the church has historically interpreted, and I could come up with different teachings and different theologies and and thus heresy you mm-hmm. see thus bad teaching and 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 things like this now uh all that being said, Luther did of course he's not malicious here, and he really wanted to reposition the Bible in the hands of the people because he genuinely believed that this would be a good thing, mm. okay? And there were certain things that Martin Luther said, I would say, is, is was probably correct uh, during that time, you know? Um, but in the end, when you sever it from the magisterium and when you separate it from tradition, then you have this free-floating book that can be read and handled in any which way, a person, let's say, feels according to quote-unquote their own conscience you could you could begin to see how then that leads to a lot of problems and i think i mentioned this in the last episode um folks told luther you know if you do this this won't stop with you this this breaking off will continue there will be a continual uh, sort of perpetual splitting off right predicated essentially on people's own reading of the bible there's no governing authority so yeah, that's that's what it is. Now you know when we hear this whole bit of tradition that that has it's kind of like a dirty word. So that needs to be unpacked there as well. But I'll say this: you know, scripture and tradition, they're really coextensive with each other, uh, and and in one sense, coterminous. Right? You you can't separate them. They they together make up the deposit of faith. And as I I think I mentioned this in a lot last episode. You know, Scripture itself is a product of tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, the New Testament doesn't drop out of the sky. Mm-hmm. Um, there were bishops that came together and, and councils, and and then ecumenical councils that kind of put the stamp of approval and the canonicity of Scripture and all of that there. So you, you so you, we already see even in the origins of Scripture. Not to mention, not to mention that the Bible itself, a certain reading of the New Testament, is kind of recognizes this. Um, that the Bible is not self-interpreting. And in one sense, it's not even self-authenticating, right? Um, And when you read scripture, it points back to clear authority, like the apostles, of course, Jesus himself. But then we see Jesus giving this authority to Peter and then to the apostles. And then we see that continuing in the book of Acts and how certain bishops and presbyters are appointed in different cities. And then there's this succession of authority. And then we, you know, as I mentioned last time, you know we see this uh carried through in the early church fathers, the apostolic fathers um but you know back to Luther, yes, there's a desire, recovery for the gospel, uh the good news um and he saw the Catholic Church as um, holding back uh the liberty of the Christian, holding back the true freedom of the gospel um but you know again, a lot you know so much more <laughs> to say about that so um So
0: was Luther trying to, like you said, unhook scripture, was he in a way trying to do away with tradition? Do you know during the Reformation the stance or like how tradition was incorporated or not incorporated in the Protestant church?
1: Yeah, this is a great question. The answer the immediate answer is no. He did not want and neither did he see himself in a certain way not doing this, not wanting to remove tradition. Mm-hmm. Um I'll give a, I'll give an example here. Um there was an issue between the other well-known reformer uh Zwingli and Luther, particularly around the issue of the Eucharist. Okay. Um and the the question was is Jesus really present uh, under the sacramental sign of the bread and the cup? Mm. Is Jesus really substantially present? Uh, the The Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church w- is in full agreement with this because this is the ancient Church. This is the, the this is the the Church has always believed the answer is yes. <laughs> Jesus is substantially present in the Eucharist, that truly and really present in the Eucharist. And the church going back again to the apostolic fathers, and we can even say, yeah, going all the actually all the way back to Scripture when St. Paul writes in First Corinthians about the body and blood. Uh, um, when when we um, see this handing on uh, in, in 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 the Gospels, mm. uh, when we read, um, let's say, the Gospel of John, chapter six, while there's not the institutional narrative there, Jesus is very visceral about the eating of his flesh and the drinking of his blood. Mm. Um, to have eternal life, and you know the Jews when they were hearing this, like whose man's is this? This guy's <laughs> wandling out, and he and he actually upped the ante, right? Mm-hmm. The, the Greek verb changes there and whatnot. Then, so the church, uh, right after that, or in continuity with that, I should say, going back to the apostolic fathers, folks like Saint Irenaeus, who was trained by Saint Polycarp, Ignatius of Antioch. These are dudes who were trained, who were discipled by, let's say, John <laughs> the mm-hmm. Apostle. They all believed that this was really the the real body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. Okay, got it. It wasn't worked out in all the the fine details of, of the sort of theology we see in the Council of Trent, mm-hmm. where the word transubstantiation is used and there's a sort of higher sophistication there of a philosophical language employed, but it's clearly there okay. from the inception of the church. Mm-hmm. And Luther, going back to the question of tradition, Luther wanted to say yes to that. He said, yeah, Jesus is really and truly present. He had problems with the language of transubstantiation, okay? He didn't like that due to his own hang-ups with philosophy and and his, his thinking about how scholasticism, which is the theology of the Middle Ages, somehow has lost sight of the gospel because it got co-opted by a kind of pagan philosophy of Aristotle let's say we see this in Thomas Aquinas mm-hmm. yeah and Luther would you know accuse St Thomas Aquinas of this years earlier so he he didn't want that so he would kind of rephrase by saying that the Christ is somehow in beneath and above or some language like that mm-hmm. um, to say that Christ yes, is really there but Lutheran scholars would differ, uh, you know, as to what that actually means, right? So you'll hear right? Is transubstantiation or consubstantiation, right? Something like that. But the point I'm trying to say here is this. Um, Luther, and I'm using this as an example, wanted to maintain the tradition. He wanted to say yes to this. Like he wanted to say yes to infant baptism, mm. right? Um, there's not, It doesn't seem to be clear scriptural evidence about infant baptism. It may be implicit in certain... Uh, terms of, let's say, in the book of Acts, when you see whole households being baptized. Mm. But yeah, Luther said, no, no, this is the perennial teaching of the church, and and this is a tradition that we ought to hold. Mm. Zwingli was like, we ain't about that, like, bro, Bible <laughs> alone. Mm, okay. <laughs> right? We don't see that. Yeah. And so Luther sees Zwingli as demonic. Wow. He sees him as an example and as an instantiation of these radical reformers, these these nuts i mean i mean uh luther had used a lot of colorful metaphors especially with people he disagreed with Uh he would just like curse people out (laughs) you know luther was wild he was wild he's a wild guy and um yeah so you see this in luther's time Wow. right another major prominent Mm -hmm. right and then and then you see this in calvin as well john calvin comes 40 years later and he wants to kind of like (laughs) <laughs> bring a balance between Zwingli and Luther uh years later, and he offers his own uh understanding of a kind of Eucharistic theology, which again is different than the perennial teaching of the church and and I'm just using this as an example here so yeah. so tradition um is received and and understood in different ways among different reformers you see even in luther he doesn't just receive the whole tradition right mm. uh because if he did he would have actually never split away from the church wow you see yeah. what i mean they, 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 there's many things he would have like no yeah you know this the church is the church um she has a seat of authority and and the roman pontiff the the bishop uh, of rome and union with all the bishops of the world etc you know he would have but there you see this kind of like choose and pick theology right very selective like "Ah, i like this we want to keep this and we're not not want to you know take that so the issue of tradition is a is a major one for for the for the reformers this could lead us by the way lewis to maybe the next thing i know you wanted to bring up which is the question of mary yes and maybe you don't want to go there yet but i I'll, I'll just say this and I just throw this in here and I'll shut up um
0: <laughs> it's good stuff though honestly thank you
1: Great. <laughs> no doubt no doubt you know and again i'm not a I'm not a historian guy, so there's a lot of things I'm, I'm missing out here but <laughs> when I receive some emails like Joe what the hell are you talking about bro you make, it, make it but uh <laughs> but um I'll say this that um mary uh fascinatingly enough the reformers had a Very high, Uh, comparatively speaking, right? If we compare that to contemporary Protestantism, a very high Mariology, right? Uh, Luther uh, believed in the perpetual virginity of Mary, that Mary remained a virgin throughout her life. Wow. She was a virgin before. Mm. She was a virgin in the midst of her pregnancy and delivery. Her virginity was kept intact all Throughout, and that means that a reading of the New Testament Gospels, let's say, where Jesus saying that he has brothers and sisters, is read in light of the ancient tradition of the Church, that the word in Greek there could be also translated as cousins mm. of Jesus, mm. right? uh Or 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 step brothers from, let's say, if Joseph had another marriage before Mary, if he was an older, right? The different traditions mm. there, but but. Um, so you see this, right? There's this sort of high Mariology uh, in Luther. You see this also with Calvin and to some degree Zwingli, and you see it dropping off. In, in some ways, you see it increasing. Uh, there was like a disciple of Luther, like I think a few years later, that you know had a high Mariology, but then it starts to drop off. So again, the issue of tradition uh, comes.
0: Let's zero in on mariology. How does the Catholic Church treat the Virgin Mary and why does it seem to place her and similar um like prominent figures? Why do they yeah. put them on like on a on a pedestal so to speak? So, mm-hmm.
1: quick answer because God is glorified in his saints. God is glorified in his saints. Longer answer Uh, In order to respond fully, we have to have a certain ecclesiology, a more robust understanding, in other words, of the church. Mm -hmm. The church doesn't cease to be church uh, as she uh, is on pilgrimage on earth, right? The church remains church even in heaven. Um, So there has to be a worked out ecclesiology there. And a certain understanding of the word prayer and worship within the Protestant context, and I'm speaking for myself included, when I was a Protestant minister and I was just a you know a Protestant, mm-hmm. um, prayer was seen as, in one sense, only directed to the Lord, right? And it was somehow coextensive with worship. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, you don't pray to idols, and that 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 would make something an idol, mm-hmm. and et cetera, et cetera. So it has to be, and the terms of of prayer and in particular, um, devotion are nuanced within the Catholic and Orthodox church, um, to make distinctions, right. To make these proper distinctions and, you know, theology and philosophy in one sense could be the art of, of making proper distinctions, the art and science of making proper distinctions Mm -hmm. for, for greater clarity. Mm -hmm. Um, one way in which we can think about this lewis uh is the following and and we'll get to mary in just a mm. moment you you come to me let's say you're going through some difficulty you say hey joe um do me a favor bro can you pray for me keep me lift me up in prayer and it's a very interesting request mm. right so it's, it's an interesting request because you have direct access to god you you are baptized, you have the blood of Christ, right? Recourse to to the Lord and his spirit. Yet you come to me. And yet you have this instinctual drive that in fact, the more you go to not only me, but to others, to intercede for you, albeit, albeit, we're not talking about you going to somebody who has passed away, right? Some Mm -hmm. ascended saint or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So we're still on earth, Mm -hmm. right? We're still in the... In the horizontal, we're not talking about the vertical. Nevertheless, this is idea like, oh, if the church prays for me, and if I get more people to pray for me, this will increase the chances <laughs> of receiving it, the kind of outcome, right? Um, why? Like, what is that? What's the theology operative there in the background? Well, again, it's this understanding that God in his providence loves to use tertiary causes secondary causes and god is glorified in that mm. such that he invites us to participate in his love by sharing in the burden of of walking with each other and prayer is one of the finest ways in which we can do that to carry each other's burden it's not that it's not that like jesus needs me right god is god he doesn't need anything he could do all things directly right Mm -hmm. uh but he draws us into this web of love you see um and, and such that um there is a kind of efficaciousness that evolves and grows by means of the intricacy of this web of prayer and 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 adoration and thanksgiving right and and so on and so on and like your prayer is answered you come back joe thank you so much for carrying me in prayer mm. bro thank you for interceding for me I, I experienced this relief you're giving me praise bro you're giving me adoration but you know it's going back to god yeah. but you, you're doing something. to he's like joe thank you so much like 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 i somehow have jesus's beeper number direct access <laughs> yeah beeper number bro like I'm in the <laughs> <over here. laughs> sos jesus S-O-S. Have a beeper. <laughs> right, right i prefer this <laughs> So, so a theology of prayer needs to be worked. You see what I mean? You see yeah. how you see how deep there's this a gets already. There. Yeah, there's a there's a nuance here. Now, um, part of what it means to be the church is to be the body of Christ. The body of Christ. We're called into this beautiful communion, as Paul says in First Corinthians. Right, the eye cannot be the eye without the head and the finger, mm. without the hand mm. and this, right? right, All these pieces are, are together. The church says uh, and recognizes in light of Scripture, part of Scripture here is the Scripture that's not within the Protestant Bible, by the way. Okay, so there were mm. books removed mm. after the Reformation over a period of time okay. that were indexed and then finally dropped away. Uh, we call them the Deuteronomical books, right? De- Deuterocanonical books, I should say. Um, and maybe from a Protestant perspective, like, you know, pseudonymous or whatever, mm-hmm. um, or apocryphal, apocryphal literature. But yeah, the Bible is more than 66 books. All right? There's there's more. Um, and when you look at some of those other books, like in 1st and 2nd Maccabees and others, you see this intercession. You see this. But you could actually begin to see some of these things, perhaps, in shadowy figures in the Old, and in the New Testament. Now, so there's a there is a biblical relevance to the intercession of the saints. Um, praying for one another doesn't stop when we die. In fact, to die in Christ is to fall asleep in Christ. Or as, Saint, as Jesus himself says uh, to the Pharisees, have you not read um, the account of the burning bush when he's saying this to the Pharisees and to the Sadducees, right? Um That God is not the God of the dead but of the living. Mm. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, right so what Jesus is essentially saying is that Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are still alive, and at the time at the, uh, glorified right or mm. ascended or, or in some other state, and at the time of Jesus and the apostles, there was already this idea of intercessory prayer that uh, a person who's gone ahead can you can you can ask for their prayer. Right. And you see this in the church from her inception, where mass and worship was offered on the tombs in the catacombs. And you would ask, right, the earliest recordings, right, the, the church would ask for the prayers of the martyrs, right? To say so and so just was killed by an emperor. Oh, please pray for us, right? So there was this already recourse to the saints. So you see this again it's an ancient tradition of the church. There's elements of this in scripture but now let's get to Mary. And I know there's a lot I'm skipping here, but I'll just jump to Mary. You know, the theology of Mary is intrinsically connected to the theology of Christ and vice versa, right? You cannot separate the two. Christ and Mary are inseparable. We believe that Jesus was born of the Virgin. We believe, as it is recorded in the Gospel of Luke, that it is by her fiat, Her, let it be done unto me according to your word, that brought about the Savior into the world. She's not a mere means to an end. That would be contrary, in fact, to the very love of God. God invites her into this synergistic participation for the sake of the salvation of the world. Mm. The titles of Mary, language about Mary, veneration of Mary, is actually all rooted in the Old Testament Scriptures. Jesus is the divinic king. He is the Messiah, the one who sits on the seat of David. Jesus is part of this Davidic line of Israel. Okay. Mm. Why is that instructive for us? When we turn to the Chronicles and 1st and 2nd and and Kings and Samuel and whatnot, what we find interesting is, is that the queen. In Israel, which is always recorded in the, in the Chronicles of the Kings, the queen is never the spouse of the king. It is always the mother of the king. Wow. The queen is the mother of the king. Mm-hmm. In fact, um, there's a scene where uh, somebody comes to put a request to Solomon, King Solomon, but does so by first going through his mother. And puts the request to her, knowing that when the mother intercedes, the son has a soft heart for the mom, as every mm-hmm. son does. In fact, she had a political office. When Solomon, when Solomon's mom came in, he actually bowed down to her as a form of veneration wow. and honor mm-hmm. and put forth a throne next to him. Or on the right hand, on his right hand, sat the throne of the queen mother of Israel. Mm-hmm. And it was this common practice that you would come through the queen mother in order to entreat the king, right? It was a sort of protocol there. And she had an office, a political office. And we see this carried through. The church is always a church of the scriptures, both old and new. And you cannot understand Jesus. Neither can we understand Mary or anything of the church unless we really see it prefigured and foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Mary is the queen because Jesus is the king, and she's the mother of Jesus. Jesus is not just some, the king of an earthly kingdom. He's the king, he is the king of all creation. He's the king of the universe. He's the king of heaven and earth and of angels, which would, by theological extension, make Mary that as well. We see intimations of this already. The angel Gabriel comes, hail, full of grace. It's a very interesting language. Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. We see this with the visitation. Mary comes to Elizabeth. She comes to the threshold of the house. Elizabeth, her older cousin, whom Mary heard that she's pregnant, right? And that's why Mary's coming to visit her. Elizabeth hears. And first thing, the Gospel of Luke records, John the Baptist in the womb. In utero, Mm -hmm. leaps for joy Mm -hmm. and Elizabeth is filled with the spirit and she cries out who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me right high Uh, veneration right yeah Yeah, it's all Mm -hmm. in the Bible Mm -hmm. right but because we read it with certain lenses it's a lot of things that we miss interesting so this is very interesting, right? We see John the Baptist already bearing witness in utero, his mother, Elizabeth, who am I that the mother of my Lord shall come to me? But, you know, blessed are you, blessed is the fruit of your womb for believing, da-da-da. And then you have Mary's uh, Magnificat, right? She offers up her praise and worship to God and da 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 You have all of this there. You also have, in that actual same scene, a kind of fulfillment, of what we see again in a, another very popular scene in the Old Testament when David, King David, is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back, mm-hmm. right? He's bringing it back, and he says, he's dancing before the Ark, and he calls out and in fact says, who am I that the Ark of God should come to me, right? And, and when you do a comparative reading of those two pericopes, of those two sections of what's happening there in the Gospel of Luke, And in this other section in the Old Testament, you you realize that Luke, the author of this gospel, is being very intentional because there are a lot of lineups here. In fact, what Luke is saying theologically in this is that Mary is the Ark of the Covenant.
0: Mm.
1: Or in her womb is contained Uh, the law of Moses, but in flesh the rod of aaron the the priestly officer this is the this is the the he's in the order of melchizedek right Ah, uh, jesus right the lamb of uh, the 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 manna from heaven the manna was kept in the ark of the covenant jesus is the bread of life mm. i get chills talking about yes. this right so you have all of these things fulfilled the early church read this and saw this mm. you read this in revelations chapter 12 with the woman the woman who's with a crown of stars, standing on the moon and the sun behind her, Revelation twelve, right? All of these things. Who bears the the, the, the Christ child, the one who would rule the rod with the nations with a rod of iron, right? So you read that. So all, it's actually replete all throughout Scripture. So this idea of veneration, and then you connect this to Genesis and uh, the, the 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 proto-Evangelion, the first mention of the gospel. When God says to Eve and to the snake, right, uh, to Eve, you know, you will bear a seed. He will crush the head of the serpent, and the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed. And Mary is, Mary, right, all of this, Mary's a fulfillment, right? She, she Mary is the new Eve. She is the mother of the living. And wait a minute. If Mary is the mother of Jesus and the church is the body of Jesus— then Mary is the mother of the church. Mm. She is the preeminent member of the church. And it goes on and it goes on and go right. The flesh, the immaculate flesh of Jesus. He was not born with sin, right? He's sinless, but it says something about the one in whom bore him, right? Mm -hmm. The one who carried him, Mary and her immaculate virginity, her immaculate purity, her virginity. She is the theotokos in Greek, the mother of God. This is established in the Council of Ephesus, Mm -hmm. right? Because God was truly incarnated in the womb of Mary. So all of these things here, you see how it's complicated in the sense that we have to have recourse to scriptures, Mm -hmm. to tradition, to the ancient church. All of that there begins to paint a picture like, wait a minute. I've been having a very minimalist and somewhat myopic understanding of the church, saints, of Mary, but when I return to the tradition and I return to what Christians, our forefathers, our brothers and sisters according to the faith from the inception, what they've always believed, Mm. this is part of our inheritance. And so then the challenge then is to kind of reef, we have to still continue to work through some questions Mm -hmm. there, but then is to sort of kind of have the paradigm shift that it requires Right the paradigm shift- and, and and the experiential shift. it's like, okay, wait, so this is me, I could like ask Mary to pray for me, Mary, uh uh you know, through your intercession, help me to experience this in my life, whatever the case is, right mm-hmm. Saint joseph, Saint John the Baptist, Saint Thomas Aquinas, right, all of these things here, mm-hmm. but that's a whole nother sort of lived experience. So what I want to do really quickly, Louis, is just um and maybe we should do I could I could do this right now. Yeah, or at the end of the episode. But I have some some resources that I think for those who are interested, they could pick it up.
0: You talked about like having a a quote unquote like myopic lens. Um, mm. How can I I don't know like develop that muscle or or challenge the lens in which I have or currently mm-hmm. view scripture, the church, and and just my faith. Like how can I? look at that differently in in light of um, our conversation today, in light of the way that you kind of talked about uh, Mary and the Catholic Church? How can I challenge that as a Protestant?
1: Yeah. Well, for me, um, the way I did it um, was essentially reading, looking things up, Mm -hmm. really, uh, and doing that in in, in the context of prayer, being really open and vulnerable to the Spirit. um, I've always been... At least I understand myself to be a pursuer of truth. Mm-hmm. And that requires a, a a great deal of vulnerability, right? Because part of what that means is that we can discover that something that we hold and cherish and, and hold dear to our hearts could in fact be wrong, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But we want to go where the truth leads mm-hmm. us. So for me, what I did was I turned to uh, certain resources. Um, I encountered certain really good books like uh, by Father Thomas Joseph White. Who I actually was able to have a corresponding a correspondence email with him back and forth, uh, wow. my journey into the yeah. into the church. Yeah, he's a he's a well known scholar, a uh, really really solid theologian. Uh, but his book is titled "The Light of Christ." The Light of Christ, uh, and the subtitle is "An Introduction to Catholicism." Really really well done. Just came out. I want to say maybe two years ago, mm-hmm. Max. Mm-hmm. Uh, really really well done. Uh, a bit more, um, not arcane, but 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 his update is up there. It's an older book uh, is by an author uh, by the name of Carl Adams with a K, Carl Adams, and and that book is titled "The Spirit of Catholicism." The Spirit of Catholicism. Another really good, and I found this book really helpful. It's by a by a uh, he was a Lutheran pastor theologian who came into the Catholic Church, became a priest. Um, a big player also in the Second Vatican Council, his name is Louis Bouyer. Louis Bouyer, he spelled the last name B-O-U-Y-E-R, okay. French dude. And, and he wrote a wonderful book titled The Spirit and Forms of Protestantism. Okay. The Spirit and Forms of Protestantism. A very, very charitable reading. Of protestantism, he's not blowing it up he's not like ah this whole thing was demonic no he's very charitable and he, essentially the thesis of his book is how the how protestantism essentially by, comes to its fullness and its completion and its perfection in catholicism that there are many good things mm. in protestantism mm-hmm. that 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 actually in, in the end find their their orientation and fulfillment in Catholicism, but he does it in a way that is not triumphalistic. So it's very nuanced. It's it's a well, really good read. Again, the title of that is The Spirit and Forms of Protestantism. But you know, for, for those of you and for you, Lewis, uh, let's say you may not have the time to, to pick up a book right now. Those books are really good, but if let's say you can't do it. Mm-hmm. um, You know, the internet has some really great material. If you just check out Catholic Answers, a uh, really good website, they have a YouTube channel as well, Catholic Answers and if you just type in questions like uh what about the crusades mm-hmm. what about mary right well how do catholics defend that right and, and and it's done in a very cogent clear way i really like also the ministry of bishop robert baron word on fire mm-hmm. he puts out a lot of great material very popular out there right now so these are you know some resources if we come to them with the intention of learning and being willing to go where the evidence leads mm-hmm. i think we will you know you will be in a great place um in in, in doing that it's scary it's like yeah it's scary unknown. that's scary, what of it is i think that's the fear. it's unknown and and you know entails a real potentially real paradigm shift mm-hmm. but you know i i am i am so happy and fulfilled. Um, by this journey Mm -hmm. and I I, I feel home Mm -hmm. for the first time actually for the first time. But you know, more to be said about that.
0: Well, thank you, Joe. I'm we're going to make sure to have the books that you mentioned and the resources Mm -hmm. that you mentioned. We'll put that in the show notes for this episode. Um, Next week, we're going to have more of a conversation on Catholicism. There is quite a bit to cover, but I think we'll probably do one or two more parts on Catholicism. Um, But I look forward to speaking more with you on this show. So thank you very much. You're welcome, brother.